Broadcasting live from the KVXL studios at Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. The Frittle Show with Crystal Heath. I've said that we must be cautious in claiming God is on our side. I think the real question we must answer is, are we on his side? Faith, family, freedom. For me, it's very simple. I think we've got to... We've got to get the country back on the right track with the most inspiring agenda. A voice in the desert. Now, here's Crystal Heath. And hello, Thursday it is, everyone. Thursday it is. It is Thursday. I'm not sure there are any other ways to say it. Thursday is it? But then it becomes a question. And it's not a question because it is Thursday. You're listening to The Frittle Show on KVXL Experience Liberty Radio, coming to you live from Studio B at Liberty Baptist Church. We're located on Rainbow and Lake Mead Boulevard. We had a great night at church last night. Hope you were able to join us. Awana kicked off for the children, and they looked like they were having boatloads of fun in the times that I saw them. Hope you guys are all having a great, great day. If you would like to be part of our show, you can. You can email us at radio at experienceliberty.com or call us at 702-647-4522. Or, of course, you can always find me on Twitter or tweet me at The Frittle. So did you notice there how I I had a a pause and then it was like I'm recollecting my thoughts? Basically, you can tell that happened. Every time my phone gets a text, I leave it here because sometimes I get important things during the show. And sometimes sometimes I get important text messages all the time. But anyway, so I just uh, uh, got a text message that I will have to deal with as soon as the show is over. And so I was trying to figure out in that split second of, of, of radio pausing in what I was doing on radio and what I have to do if, if it was something that could wait. And I'm going to decide that it is. And we are going to move on. I'm going to stop telling you about my radio secrets because you don't need to know them all you can know some of them you can know some of them but you don't get to know them all unless you want to volunteer in radio because I am still looking I am still on the hunt for an assistant or two in particular a call screener we can start taking calls live if I found someone who was willing to come in and screen some calls. So we'll see. We're still still working on that. Still working on getting our online stream back up and running over at kvxl101.com. It will be up for kids' time. That is my my one goal for this entire week is to have our online stream back up for Saturday kids time all right so let's start uh let's start in the news of the day uh, another tragedy to start today's show at the american university of kabul uh yesterday we had at least 12 people killed and 36 wounded uh, in attack on american university in afghanistan this is fro- from fox news um Approximately 12 hours after an attack began Wednesday evening, Kabul Police Chief Abdul Rahman Ramini said that about 700 students had been rescued from the university compound. That's the good news. Uh, but as I mentioned, 12 individuals uh, were killed and 36 others were wounded when gunmen attacked the American University of Afghanistan in Kabul, officials said yesterday. 
Details on the victims were not immediately available, uh, but an official with the Ministry of Public Health said a guard employed by the university was among the dead. Reuters is reporting that both gunmen involved in the assault were also killed. There were no immediate claims of responsibility for the attack on the university, which was established in 2006 to offer liberal arts courses modeled on the United States system, and the university currently has more than 1,000 students enrolled. Witnesses said the gunmen got into the university despite tight security measures, including armed guards and watchtowers. I finished my class and was about to leave when I heard a few gunshots and a huge explosion followed by more gunfire, a student said. I ran toward the emergency exit with other students climbed the wall and jumped outside. Another student described jumping out of a second floor window in an attempt to escape the attack. Many students jumped from the second floor. Some broke their legs and some hurt their head trying to escape, said Abdullah Fahimi, a student who injured his ankle making the leap. Dozens of students and foreign staffers who could not get away barricaded themselves inside classrooms and safe rooms. Associate press photographer Masood Hassani was in a classroom of 15 students when he heard an explosion on the southern flank of the campus. I went to the window to see what was going on, and I saw a person in normal clothes outside. He shot at me and shattered the glass, Hassani said, adding that he fell on the glass and cut his hands. The students then barricaded themselves inside the classroom, pushing chairs and desks against the door and staying on the floor. Uh, There were then at least two grenades thrown into the classroom, which wounded several of his classmates. Um, the U.S. military assisted Afghan forces in responding to the attack. The attack was the second time in less than three weeks that the American University has been targeted by militants. So no one's uh, no one's taken responsibility for this event yet. But I I am I'm guessing that you know it, it wasn't attacked by Buddhists or you know, like Presbyterians. I'm just throwing that out there pretty sure they weren't involved and I'm fairly certain that we could make a pretty educated guess about who may have done this and what their uh, ideological background may be uh, but we won't we won't speculate we will wait we will wait and we will we will see what uh, the reports reveal as far as I've read there wasn't anyone shouting any names of any gods uh, so that usually is what gives it away pretty easily, um, but I haven't seen that uh, yet. Doesn't mean it doesn't ha- didn't happen there, but I have not seen that reported. So we will still wait and see what perhaps was the motivation there uh, in that incident. All right, moving on to the realms of the politics quickly here. Uh, Donald Trump is now slamming Hillary for what he is calling third world corruption. After it came out uh, earlier this week or late last week that half of her meetings as Secretary of State were with Clinton Foundation donors. Half of her meetings. I realize this woman is running for president, but you guys, the corruption here. You know, you, you may not like Mr. Trump as a candidate for president, but he's absolutely right. The corruption that just is continuing to be exposed with the Clintons is have has reached a level where it it's just mind boggling that anyone in in American government could get away with this repeatedly, just continue to to have things revealed about them that would land anyone else in jail. It blows my mind. Like how how is this possible? 
Anyway, from the Daily Mail, Donald Trump stepped up his attacks on Hillary Clinton by accusing her of third world corruption after revelations about donor access to the Democratic candidate. The Republican nominee called the revelations about Clinton and her family's charitable foundation a disgrace and a threat to the foundation of democracy at a rally in Austin, Texas. And you know what? He is exactly right on this one. It is a disgrace. Half of your meetings as Secretary of State are with your donors to your foundation? What? Like, you're literally buying access to the U.S. Secretary of State by donating to her quote-unquote charitable foundation. That's it, plain and simple. It, it, It can't be more obvious. A report revealed that more than half the people outside government who met with Clinton while she was Secretary of State donated money to the Clinton Foundation. It is a total embarrassment if our Secretary of State can be bought or bribed or sold, Trump said. It's a disgrace. This is a threat to the foundation of democracy. This is what happens in third world countries. And that's not... That's not something that's being offensive to third world countries. It's true. Corruption is rampant in many third world country governments. You can buy off many government officials. I've been to a number of third world countries. I have literally seen it happen with my own eyes. I almost ended up in prison one time for having seen a bribe happen with a government official with my own eyes. And that is another story for another time. But what I'm saying is... Mr. Trump is correct. Hillary is behaving as though she is some type of third world dictator that can be bought and sold. Or at least she did while she was Secretary of State. And if she did this while she was Secretary of State, what on earth do we think would keep her from doing this if she were to become president? That you could buy access now, if it looks like Hillary ends up that she might win the presidency, you might want to consider donating to the Hillary and Bill Clinton Foundation, and perhaps you too can get a meeting. Just a thought. I mean, a man's gifts make room for him. Pretty sure we could reinterpret the passage in this manner. The Associated Press reported that at least 85 of 154 people from private interests who met or had telephone conversations scheduled with Clinton while she led the State Department donated to her family charity or pledged commitments to its international programs. Which, by the way, I actually had uh, one time when I was in Africa, uh, the pastor, the American pastor that went with us and he ran the missions organization that I was working with at the time, we were we were discussing this very thing, bribes and corruption, with the some local pastors on the ground, local Baptist pastors on the ground, and they were literally explaining to us how a man's gift makes room for him was justification for bribing government officials. Not a joke. Anyway, those 85 donors contributed a combined $156 million, according to the A. The report said the meetings between Clinton and donors did not appear to violate legal agreements she and her husband, former President Bill Clinton, signed before she joined the State Department. But the frequency of the overlap shows the intermingling of access and donations and fuels perceptions that giving the foundation money was a price of admission for FaceTime with Clinton, the AP reported. That's the AP saying that. Trump said 
uh, in his rally, Hillary Clinton is totally unfit to hold public office. It is impossible to figure out where the Clinton Foundation ends and the State Department begins. It is now abundantly clear that the Clintons set up a business to profit from public office. They sold access. This is corruption, and this is why I have called for a special prosecutor to look into this mess. It shouldn't have to be Donald Trump calling for a special prosecutor to look into this mess. I mean, we're supposed to have checks and balances in our government system for a reason. And if you look at Lyndon Johnson and what he took over after after Richard Nixon left, there is no feasible way, if you think that Richard Nixon deserved to be removed from the presidency, that Hillary Clinton does not. Hillary Clinton makes Richard Nixon look like Abraham Lincoln. In, in good ways. It's just mind-boggling. But over on the Trump side, Donald Trump's campaign is getting slammed for its vast increases in rent for its campaign offices at Trump Tower. This is from CNN. Donald Trump's campaign is defending its reasoning for more than quadrupling what it pays to rent office space in the Republican presidential's nominee's namesake tower, saying the higher rent comes from occupying more space. Federal Election Commission filings show that the Republican nominee's campaign paid nearly $170,000 in rent rent last month for space at the Manhattan skyscraper, a dramatic jump from March when the campaign paid Trump Tower only $35,000 dollars in rent so it's a huge increase and many people are saying well now that trump is getting donations see he's not using that money for campaign ads because he's using it for himself but there's a problem with that uh one is that uh the um the the space that the Trump campaign is using in Trump Tower because they are adding more staff. They added two more levels of Trump Tower to Trump campaign space. Now, whether two levels equals quadruple the rent, that's you know debatable. But space in Manhattan is not cheap. And what no one is talking about is that even with their quadrupled rent and three floors of Trump Tower, they are still paying $40,000 less in rent per month than the Clinton campaign. Clinton's campaign is paying $212,000 a month for 80,000 square feet of office space in Brooklyn. So, yeah, we can can go here. It does seem a little bit fishy that all of a sudden... Now that you have donors that you're quadrupling your rent and adding more space, but you haven't actually added more staff yet. But the hypocrisy, again, you have to be willing to talk about both sides here. And the other side of this is that the Trump campaign is still paying significantly less than the Clinton campaign for office space. So if we want to talk about office space expenditures, let's compare the two. Not rocket science. All right. Mr. Trump has some good news, though, in Utah, uh, where many people had been saying, you know, well, Trump is putting all of the red states in play. He's going to lose Utah. Not necessarily. Um, Evan McMullen is poised to potentially do quite well in Utah. Whether or not he can actually win there remains to be seen. 
Uh, but there is a new poll in Utah that shows Mr. Trump holding a 15-point lead there currently, which is good because in many of the swing states he is not leading. Uh, Hillary Clinton is still fairly uh, solid in her polling, although the polls lately have been all over the place. But, uh, you know, th- this is good because there's no reason that Utah shouldn't go red. If you're a Trump supporter, this is a good thing. Uh, Utah always goes red. But overall, the polling data in swing states, as I said, those are the numbers that really need to shift if Mr. Trump hopes to win in November. All right. Also on the Trump front, I know, I know it's a lot of Trump where this is the last one. All right. But uh, he's now saying that he's going to soften his immigration stance. And there's been varying reports on what that will actually mean. And what he has said or has not said. And some people will tell you that he's going soft. My my opinion, he's finally starting to say what he should have said all along relating to immigration. And what he's, talk about, what he's talking about doing is what he actually can do. Because as many people got caught up in the Trump phenomenon, they, they've adopted this uh, savior king mentality in many ways, I fear, to where many on the right look at and think of Mr. Trump in much of the same way that many on the left thought of uh, then-candidate Barack Obama, that once he gets into office, he can do whatever he wants. The fact of the matter is that is not true unless he plans to govern as a dictator rather than a president. So there was never going to be mass deportation. There wasn't. So what should Mr. Trump have said from the beginning? He should have said we're going to enforce the laws that we have. And oh, by the way, I'm also going to build a wall to help us enforce the laws that we already have. That's not a terrible immigration plan. That's one that people will support. And that's one that is, is, is reasonable. But what's ironic is that Mr. Trump's plan on immigration now virtually mirrors that of Senator Marco Rubio's from the primary. And many on the right that currently support Trump had stated unequivocally that they could never support Marco Rubio because of what they called his support for, quote, shamnesty, unquote. It is amazing to me how quickly voters can forget and or adapt. All right, so you think you have problems with your neighbors? Think again. Unless they're shooting rockets at your house or stabbing your wife in the street, your neighbors probably really aren't that bad. Probably really not. This is from the Jerusalem Post. The United States is deeply concerned about initial Hebron expansion plan. We've said repeatedly such moves are not consistent with Israel's stated desire to achieve a two-state solution. U.S. State Department Deputy Spokesperson Mark Toner told reporters. The U.S. is deeply concerned by an Israeli plan to build 28 Jewish homes on the site of a former Palestinian bus station in Hebron. As a first step, infrastructure plans can be drawn up, but the project will still need many more approvals before it can be completed. We've said repeatedly such moves are not consistent with Israel's stated desire to achieve a two-state solution, U.S. State Department Deputy Spokesperson Mark Toner told reporters in Washington on Tuesday. I love when... Articles repeat themselves word for word. Anyway, he spoke against the project that would be housed within an existing military base, Plugat 
Hamitachanim, which is located next to the Shavai Hevron Yeshiva, situated in the old Biet Ramano building. The building plans represent a deeply concerning step of settlement expansion, Toner said in response to a reporter's question. The project is designed for land where six Jewish families currently live in caravans and has been put forward by the Jewish community of Hebron along with the Construction and Justice Ministries. Uh, there's, there's, I want to actually talk about how this got to here. I'm trying to find this part of the article. Um, the state explained that the property where the caravans are located belonged to a member of the old Jewish community in Hebron, which fled after the 1929 Arab riots in which 67 Jews were massacred. After the 1948 War of Independence, it passed into the hands of the Jordanian government under the abandoned property law. The Jordanian custom of aban- or custodian rather, of abandoned property then rented it to the Hebron municipality, which used it as a bus station. The Israeli custodian of abandoned property continued that rental situation when the IDF took control of the area after the Six-Day War in 1967. IDF is the Israeli Defense Force. But in 1983, the IDF seized that property in an adjacent Palestinian lot to create a military base. Then in 1991, the Justice Ministry ruled that the Hebron municipality's rights to the lot under a protected lease agreement had expired and therefore Jewish homes could be built there. But subsequent legal opinions, including one in 2007, said that the Hebron municipality still had protected tenancy rights. Those rights, the 2007 opinion stated, were superseded only by security needs, such as the ones that mandated the placement of a military base there. In 2008, Peace Now unsuccessfully petitioned the High Court of Justice to raise the homes in the area. Um... Uh... But its case was dismissed in 2010. A justice ministry source told the Jerusalem Post that the prevailing legal opinion now is that the Hebron municipality's protected lease has indeed ended and that Jewish homes could be built on the property that had once been part of the pre-1929 Jewish community there. So, if you're ever confused about why things are, are so complicated with borders and whether or not there should be a two-state solution in, in Israel, or if there should be uh, Palestine, this this if that doesn't confuse you, I don't know what will. Basically, Jewish community is taken over by Arabs who, who run into their homes, kill 67 Jews, take over the place. Israel's war for independence in 1948 takes back this land, which was stolen from these murdered uh, Jewish families. Then Israel rents this land to Jordan. Then Israel regains control of this land from Jordan to create a military compound. Then they decide that we can build houses here. And then world legal authority authorities who are like, yeah, we don't actually live there and we're not really involved in your problems, but we're going to tell you that you shouldn't build there because that might make the people who once murdered you guys angry at you. I'm sorry. That's too bad. If Israel would like to build on Israeli land, there should be a better reason than mm, your Palestinian neighbors might not like that because once upon a time they murdered the Jewish people that were living there and took it away from you and they really don't want you to build there again. So, no. No, that's ridiculous. 
If Israel wants to build on Israel's land, then Israel should be allowed to build. Period. The end. Hashtag stand with Israel. Can't see it, but I'm hashtagging with my fingers right now. Hashtag. Let them build in Hebron. All right. I've got to take a break. Today's programming is brought to you by Krispy Kreme Donuts Fundraising Opportunities. Krispy Kreme fundraisers are available year-round. They can take place over one to two days or one to two weeks. If your educational, religious community, or charitable cause is looking for a fun way to meet your financial goals, Krispy Kreme can help. Krispy Kreme provides free fundraising materials for your use, and you can visit KrispyKreme.com slash fundraising or your local Krispy Kreme to learn more. Our thanks to Krispy Kreme for their support of KVXL programming. All right, we're going to play above all from Michael W. Smith. We'll be back in just a minute to continue with today's ramblings. Don't go away. And that was Michael W. Smith with Above All. Remember, if you're listening to the podcast of the show on iTunes or SoundCloud, I'm sorry you don't get to hear the music, but you can tune in live and hear the music. There's actually... There's a few things that you miss out on if you're listening to the podcast version. So don't forget to check us out live, too. 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern Time is when you want to do that. 101.1 FM in Las Vegas or KVXL101.com if you're streaming online. All right. Here's a headline that isn't shocking anyone with a brain. Are you ready? Muslims defend polygamy in response to same-sex unions. Following the introduction, this is from Breitbart.com, following the introduction of civil partnerships, Muslim representatives in Italy are now demanding the legalization of polygamy. Responding to a new law allowing same-sex partners to enter civil unions, Hamza Picardo argued that if gay relationships, with which Muslims disagree with, are a civil right, then Italians must accept polygamy as a civil right, too. The founder of the Union of Islamic Communities and Organizations in Italy took to Facebook to claim polygamy is a civil right and that Italy would benefit from the large number of Muslim births it would promote. Their president wrote, when it comes to civil rights here, then polygamy is a civil right. Muslims do not agree with homosexual partnerships, and yet they have to accept a system that allows it. There is no reason why Italy should not accept polygamous marriages of consenting persons. The call for polygamy from Italy's largest Muslim umbrella group was met with outrage by a number of politicians. Deborah Seracini, deputy chairman of the ruling Democratic Party, said centuries of fighting for women's rights simply cannot be brushed aside. Polygamy has nothing to do with civil rights, she added. Paula Grimaldi, an MEP for the anti-mass migration Northerling, declared this is the moderate Islam with which the Italian government intends to keep the dialogue open. Reflecting on the debate his Facebook post unleashed, Mr. Picardo said a simple consideration of legal philosophy has sparked an uproar so grotesque as to even be funny. Doubling down on his earlier plea, the head of the Muslim Brotherhood-linked body insisted polygamy is a civil right and a matter of equality of citizens before the law. Mr. Picardo commented, do not underestimate the demographic action of polygamy. It would resemble, it would rebalance rather population decline and the consequent need for foreign labor. Youth unemployment in Italy has averaged at 40% over the past year. All right, now there are many, 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 many countless things with which I disagree with those of the Muslim faith. However, this uh, this imam is is correct. 
If gay marriage is to be considered a civil right, then polygamy ought also to be considered a civil right. I disagree with both 100%. Both are contrary to the word of God. However, if you're going to claim that one is a civil right, then really you should have to claim that the other is as well. I I said this months ago, years ago, actually, if you listened to my show before we made our way over here to KVXL. When you begin to redefine marriage, you have to ask the question, where does it stop and why? If marriage is not simply the holy union of one man and one woman, then what is it? If it is just about people loving each other, then why only two people? Why only people that aren't related? Why only people over 18? I mean, if love is love, is love, then where do you draw the boundary? If all morality is relative, then, then why would polygamy not be acceptable if, if gay marriage is? See, this is what happens when man thinks that he knows better than God. This is what happens when morality becomes subjective, when we shun moral absolutes in favor of tolerance and acceptance. Either a society exists based on moral absolutes or that society will crumble. I mean, study ancient Rome sometime. You might see some familiarly scary stuff there. You know, John Adams said this country was made by, and our Constitution is only capable of governing, governing a moral and religious people. We know the quote, but we stop short of answering the question it presents. And that question is, what happens when Americans abandon morality and faith? If our Constitution is only capable of governing a moral and religious people, what happens when we reject both? What happens when we strike down the Ten Commandments as being somehow offensive? Now, let's, let's go there. Let's just list the Ten Commandments for a second, all right? The Ten Commandments are, you shall have no other gods before me. You won't make idols. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Honor your mom and dad. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Uh, don't bear false witness. Don't lie. And don't covet. So let's start, we'll start with number 10 and work our way backward through these for a minute, okay? Number 10 is no coveting. That might seem a bit extreme in today's culture, but overall it seems like a good general rule, doesn't it? I mean, if you're not coveting someone else's stuff, you're probably less likely to steal it. So that would be a good thing, no? Let me go to number 9, no lying. Again, just a pretty good standard for living that basically everyone would accept as, yeah, that's a good moral rule. Number eight is no stealing. Again, one that any legal system anywhere can embrace and does, right? So we're still good. Then we hit number seven. No adultery. And then all of a sudden it starts getting personal. Because now we're telling people what they can or cannot do in their personal lives. And we don't want to mess with those personal lives. But then we're back to number six, which is no murder. We like that one. We think we'll keep that one. And then we have to throw in one of these other personal ones, like honor your mom and dad, number five. Um, no thank you. My parents just don't understand me. Have you heard that excuse lately? But maybe, maybe that one would be good to keep in our schools. Maybe we should just suggest honoring authority. Maybe we can keep that one. Then comes keeping the Sabbath, number four. 
And think about that one for a while. Even as a Christian, do you have any idea what that really means? I mean, is keeping the Sabbath holy simply a matter of going to a church building on a Sunday? Hmm. Number three, not taking God's name in vain. And some many people will say that this is using Jesus' name as a curse word. Which is interesting that no one curses with Buddha or Muhammad's name, isn't it? So, I mean, Satan doesn't care about those names being revered. Um, and there is that side of, of, of uh, not taking God's name in vain. But beyond that, there's the perspective of, hey, don't bear my name in vain. Be a good representation of me. Then we come to number two. No idols, which doesn't exactly measure up with our modern definition of tolerance. I mean, once again, we're back to telling people what they can or cannot do in their personal lives. But then comes the first one. No other gods before me. And that's the kicker. And that's the first one. Number one is the basis for the rest, and I'd argue the only number needed by those who say that the Ten Commandments have no place in public life. Because the Ten Commandments declare right off the bat that God is God is God, and everything else is built upon that foundation. But what about those other ones that everybody agrees on? I mean, who decided that murder was bad? Who decided that theft was bad? Who decided that lying was bad. These aren't things that our modern culture came together on and created consensus and said, hey, this is an overruling moral code for mankind. These three of the Ten Commandments are good ones. No. The person who decided that these things were bad is the very same person who also decided that adultery was bad, that disrespecting your parents was bad, and oh yes, that not recognizing God as God was bad. And what I find interesting in the Ten Commandments is that there's no command to worship God or to love God. Now, Jesus later would tell us that that is the greatest commandment. And so then in Deuteronomy, uh, love the Lord your God. And that sums up everything else. But it's not listed directly in the Ten Commandments. Because there's always a choice to love and worship God. But what God said was non-optional. He said, look, you can choose to love me or to not love me, but what you will definitely not do, you're not going to have a God that isn't me, and you're not going to make any idols. And oh, by the way, if you're going to claim to be mine, then you better act like it, which includes keeping my day holy. And that's the first four commandments in a nutshell. And if you look at it throughout the Old Testament, isn't it fascinating that it wasn't so much when the children of Israel turned from God, but when they found something else to turn to, that punishment always came. That's not to, say, not to say, of course, that it's okay to turn from God in any sense, but what's fascinating to me is that there's always going to be a God-sized void in life, in any life that doesn't acknowledge him, and mankind will always attempt to fill that void in some way. That's interesting, isn't it? But so because the Ten Commandments starts off with, hey, I'm God, whether you like it or not, you can choose to like or not, like, but I'm God. And that's number one. And so we take all of the Ten Commandments, we take all of of God's code for living, which wasn't made to make us miserable, but to make us happy. Because like, look, you live right. And I will bless you. 
Not that your life will always be perfect and wonderful. I mean, look at Noah. The dude ended up building a humongous boat, which he had to live on with stinky animals and his sons who probably also didn't smell that great uh, for quite some time. But that was God's blessing in his life. So when we take what God says and we say, you know what? Not sure if he really knew what he was talking about because we in our infinite human wisdom have decided that tolerance is the way to go. That we just need to let people love people and we all love everybody and everything is okay. When everything becomes okay, when there is no moral standard and truth becomes subjective, then we end up with the culture that we have where anything goes. And if we're going to say that a man can marry a man, then what is to say that a man can't marry two, three, four, five women? If it's, all, if it's only about love and consent, where do we draw the line? We can't. If we eliminate the moral standard which God has set forth, then everything becomes subjective. And polygamy will be the next step. And on that note, (laughs) we're going to take another break because we're going to play a song, then we're going to come back. We'll wrap things up for you this Thursday. I promise I will find something fun or inspirational or crazy or it, it will be, oh, ooh, ooh, I know where, I know what it will be. Wait, 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 where did I, ah, the Great Moon Hoax. That is what we are going to end the show with today. You do not want to miss finding out about the Great Moon Hoax. But first, Brit Nicole with The Lost Get Found will be back in just a minute. That was Brit Nicole with The Lost Get Found. All right, we're ending the show for Thursday, but never fear. We'll be back tomorrow with Fun Friday. We're going to give away Living Among Lions, David and Jason Benham's fantastic book about thriving like Daniel in today's Babylon. So be sure to tune in tomorrow for information on how can you, how you can rather win that book. But first, the Great Moon Hoax. On this day in 1835, the first in a series of six articles announcing the supposed discovery of life on the moon appeared in the New York Sun newspaper. Known collectively as the Great Moon Hoax, the articles were supposedly reprinted from the Edinburgh Journal of Science. The byline was Dr. Andrew Grant, described as a colleague of Sir John Herschel, a famous astronomer of the day. Herschel had in fact traveled to Cape Town, South Africa in January 1834 to set up an observatory with a powerful new telescope. As Grant described it, Herschel had found evidence of life forms on the moon, including such fantastic animals as unicorns, two-legged beavers, and furry winged humanoids resembling bats. The articles also offered vivid descriptions of the moon's geography, complete with massive craters, enormous amethyst crystals, rushing rivers, and lush lush vegetation. The New York Sun, founded in 1833, was one of the new penny press papers that appealed to a wider audience with a cheaper price and a more narrative style of journalism. From the day the first Moon Hoax article was released, sales of the paper shot up considerably. It was exciting stuff and readers lapped it up. The only problem 
was that none of it was true. Turns out there aren't actually unicorns, two-legged beavers, and furry-winged humanoids on the moon. The Edinburgh Journal of Science had stopped publication years earlier, and Grant was a fictional character. The articles were most likely written by Richard Adams Locke, a Sun reporter educated at Cambridge University. Intended as satire, they were designed to poke fun at earlier serious speculations about extraterrestrial life, particularly those of the Reverend uh, Thomas Richard, a popular science writer who claimed in his best-selling books that the moon alone had 4.2 billion inhabitants. Readers were completely taken in by the story, however, and failed to recognize it as satire. The craze over Herschel's supposed discoveries even fooled a committee of Yale University scientists who traveled to New York in search of the Edinburgh Journal articles. After Sun employees sent them back and forth between the printing and editorial offices hoping to discourage them, the scientists returned to New Haven without realizing they had been tricked. On September 16, 1835, the Sun admitted the articles had been a hoax. People were generally amused by the whole thing, and sales of the paper didn't suffer. The Sun continued its operation until 1950 when it merged with the New York World Telegram. That merger folded in 1967. A new New York Sun newspaper was founded in 2002, but has no relation to the original, which ran the Great Moon Hoax of 1935. For 15 years... Americans believed a hoax about life on the moon, which consisted of unicorns. Bet you never knew that. And now, you do. Hope you all have a fantastic day. Thank you for tuning in. This is 101.1 FM, KVXL Experience Liberty Radio from Liberty Baptist Church. Our next service will be Sunday morning. We actually have two, 9.30 and 11.15. We'd love to have you, your family, your friends, your neighbors, everyone you know, join us on Sunday morning. This is going to be Testify to Love. I believe it's Avalon. We'll be back tomorrow. Don't miss it.